You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish and oh my goodness, do we have a great episode for you guys today. I am very excited uh, and as you all know, uh, our friend Abby uh, usually joins us on this podcast, but although he just flew back from Vancouver, he left his microphone there. So uh, in the meantime, what we figured we would do is uh, have some guests on, which been, we've been meaning to do anyway. Uh, and I'm really excited today because we are joined by a good friend of mine and an absolute uh, superstar in the cannabis investing community. You guys might know him online under the name Cannavestments, and he goes by the name Nick Gastovich. Nick, how you doing? Manish, I'm good, man. I appreciate the, the very warm intro. You know, I was hoping for maybe like a rhyme like you do with Abby, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll take it. You are the best from the Midwest, sir. Ooh, I like it. I like it. I'll take it. Um, no, that's that's great, man. And uh, I, I'm assuming you heard the story I told last time about uh, uh, meeting you and your brother uh, at the dinner uh, where I had, you know, I had seen for for months the posts you were making online uh, under the name Canavestments, and you just always seem to have the best information, especially on GTI, which is a company I was super interested in. And uh, I came to that dinner and I said, I have to meet this guy Canavestments. I, I just I need to pick his brain and get to know him. And the rest is history, I suppose. <laughs> that's, that's real nice of you to say. Yeah, I mean, it, it was great meeting you then, and you know, uh, I really enjoyed our our friendship and as we've gotten to uh work closer together and you know start looking at the canvas market more broadly um you know it's been great to get to know you yeah no and and same to you man and and so like today uh it's an episode that we've been meaning to do for a while um and you know we've been preaching forever that people should be taking a closer look at the u.s um you know Obviously, there's been a lot more attention in that arena in the last few weeks and months with the rally that's happened. But I think you and I are both big believers that these are early innings and early days. So today is going to be about um, reviewing the big four companies in the space. And they're companies that you and I have kind of referred to as green chip companies, uh, which is kind of a play on the word blue chip, except for the cannabis space. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, you know, the the especially this quarter, but uh, you know, I guess slowly over the past year, I think it's been pretty clear that uh there's four companies that really stood out in terms of executing on the, on a game plan and uh really starting to develop really sound financials. Um mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of kind of developing on the long-term vision that uh we've kind of had for the cannabis market in general that maybe you know, we we're a little bit disappointed with what happened in Canada, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but now we're really seeing these, you know, these companies get some scale and uh, 
really, really just execute um, on a vision as some of these core state markets really, really grow. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important to, to point out to people like, you know, when we talk about general market investing and people use the word blue, you know, the term blue chip, right? It typically refers to something that is established, stable, safe, kind of boring investment. Um, and, you know, we use the the term green chip kind of, you know, in, in, we're having some fun, but it's an important distinction because even the best cannabis company, it's not the same as a established, you know, blue chip company, right? These are newer businesses. They are federally illegal businesses. They carry risk with them. Things are changing all the time. So even as good as these companies are, you really have to still understand that they come with a certain amount of volatility and uncertainty that is atypical of a established business. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a excellent point to make early on. Um, that you know th- this is an inherently risky industry um, in a totally you know new market um, with constantly developing uh, you know demand supply characteristics, legislation, regulation. Um, there's a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so these, you know, kind of four we've identified have definitely excelled. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, this is by no means um, a mature industry with, with guaranteed success. But, you know, these companies have started to show, uh, you know, the righteous development that, you know, will one day get them to a, a more respected level uh, across the entire U.S., Absolutely. So here's the format for today. We're going to keep it real simple. What we're going to do is we're going to go through the four companies uh, in the order of uh, GTI, TrueLeave, Cresco, and then CuraLeaf. And what we're going to do is talk about for each company, uh, the footprint that each company has, uh, the Q2 financials for 2020 and their margins, and then talk about uh, valuation, where it is today, uh, how that compares it, uh, to, you know, whether we think that's reasonable, rich, or cheap, and then where we see it going in the future. So, uh, and I just want to start by saying, you know, these companies can often be quite complex to understand. So, uh, e- you know, even uh, Nick, I know you pay a ton of attention and have really, really deep knowledge, uh, but it's sometimes so hard to really know these companies. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I mean, mainly just because, unlike a lot of other industries, these these main MSOs are vertically integrated. So you know they have to be good at growing. They have to be good at processing, packaging, you know, CPG, and then on top of that, they have to be retailers and distributors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very complex business with you know different revenue and margins uh, on different elements of the business. So mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and now put that on top of a multi-state market where there's different rules in every single state. Um, so, so like you said, you have to closely monitor every aspect of the business just to get a base understanding of what, what's going on. And then the, the, you know, layer on top of that, the companies give selective disclosure. So they don't, you know, they'll tell you, Hey, we have a, a number one market share in Pennsylvania, but it's like, well, how are you calculating that? Right. Or, They'll say we have operations in uh, Illinois, but when you dig into it, it's really a hemp operation. Uh, and I'm not saying that these big four do that, but I'm just giving you examples of, you know, sometimes companies will deliberately kind of give selective information that makes it really hard to understand what's going on. So it's really tough to understand these companies, which is why we wanted to spend time today and dig through these big four. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, look no further than adjusted EBITDA for yeah. a, 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 <laughs> a massage point. number. I mean, we'll get into that today. But Yeah, great point. So look, let's kick it off. Let's start with GTI. Uh, Nick, I'm going to hand the floor over to you. Uh, and then maybe you can also just touch on you know, your background with the company so people can understand, you know, where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, if, if you guys are on any of the major uh, cannabis forums, you'll, you'll have seen me talking about GTI for uh, quite some time now. Um, and it's mainly just because it, it was a company that, you know, was our first investment ever in, in the cannabis space. This is going back to way back to 2014. Um, when GTI applied for their very first uh, medical grow and retail licenses here in Illinois. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have been, you know, very close with, you know, the management of the company and it just generally it's development in all of these states, you know, since 2014. Um, So I was a, it was a great first investment, not only from a return perspective, but mainly just from an understanding of the entire industry. Cause I, you know, was there as GTI uh, applied in, you know, in basically every new medical state market, you know, primarily on the Midwest and and in the East coast. Great. Um, So, yeah, you know, I, I, it was a company that I think early on we saw an inherent trust in the management, you know, they Mm -hmm, had, mm -hmm. they had their own money in it and, you know, they just seemed very keen on uh, respecting shareholders dollars and, you know, treating it like their own. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, to their credit, that was something I saw early on and, you know, we're six years, seven years later now. And I, and I think they still adhere to those fundamental principles today. That's great. That's great. So, so give, give us the lay of the land, Nick, where is GTI today? Sure. So, you know, as, as most people who follow the company know, their, their main market, you know, where they got started is here in Illinois. Uh, we mm-hmm. have, you know, it's a state, a highly attractive state, limited license, highly regulated with t- just 21 large scale cultivation licenses for the whole state. Um, and initially 55 retail, um, you know, that has six, since expanded to 110 and soon to be 185. Um, but GTI had two of those initial 21 cultivation licenses. Mm-hmm. Um, the only company with multiple other than Cresco who has three. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have the maximum that the state allows on the retail side of 10 retail licenses, eight of which are open today. Got um, so, so Illinois has obviously been their core market. Um, they've, they've talked a lot about it. It's, you know, undersupplied um, with tons of demand. So they've, you know, put a lot of, a lot of their thought and money into that. Mm-hmm. And then their other primary market that they always push is, is Pennsylvania. They, okay. You know, it's again a market where they applied early um, and won some of those early medical and grow licenses in the state. Um, and over time, they expanded in the state, both through secondary applications and as well as through M&A. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have a, you know, a leading market share on, on the retail side in the state with 18 total licenses with 12 active today. Um, and, that, and then they are also fairly, fully vertical uh, in, in the state. Got it. Um, so then looking beyond that, they have a total footprint of 12 states. Um, okay. You know, there's a handful of them that are much smaller than the others, but outside Illinois and Pennsylvania, their, their next two largest markets would be Nevada, um, a state that they entered back in 2017. Um, 
through two of their own rise stores along with the grow. And then they um, expanded with the acquisition of integral associates back in 2018 known as the essence dispensaries. Um, so similarly, they have a leading retail market share in the state, the most open of any, any operator uh, with seven current stores and licenses for 13 total. Um, next, we have the, the Massachusetts license. Currently, mm-hmm. they just have the one retail store open in Amherst that serves both medical and adult use, um, but they are vertical in the state and they do some big wholesale. Um, and then kind of rounding that out, you know, they have pretty good, they obviously have a Florida license. They're not, you know, haven't put as much effort and money into it at today, um, but it's at six stores now. And I imagine will be, you know, a focus once there's more of a near term legalization horizon in Florida. Right, um, right. Okay. And then rounding out, they have, you know, exposure in Connecticut. Um, they have an upcoming, they, have, they want a license in New Jersey. Uh, retail just became operational, but um, wholesale soon to be um, on top of exposure in Ohio, New York. Uh, so they have a lot of, you know, just general exposure to essentially all the high growth markets uh, other than that, that, I'd say Arizona. Right, um, right, right, right. That seems to be the only hole re- really in the, the footprint of kind of near term. Right. And perhaps Michigan, but Michigan has, you know, somewhat, it's a developing market with, you know, it's not as limited license. So the, you know, it's, I understand why they didn't enter that state um, and, and have, you know, kept forward with this highly, you know, highly limited license markets in general. Got it. Got it. So, so Nick, let me ask you. So before we get into the numbers of GTI, uh, when you look at their current footprint, and one thing I notice about GTI is they keep a really tight footprint. Um, when you look at these, this footprint, where do you think they're driving, you know, the the majority of their profitability today versus what are the markets you're excited for, you know, in, in the short to medium term? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Just because it's one of the things I like about GTI is both that I see, you know, in, in the near term and, you know, even right now we've seen in these past two quarters, um, they have markets in Illinois and Pennsylvania that we know to be extremely high growth, extremely high margin. Um, and, you know, just looking ahead, uh, Pennsylvania still has legalization on the horizon, um, but, you know, lots of continued medical growth for them. And then here in Illinois, we, you know, we've seen what the numbers look like month over month, um, just tremendous growth ahead. And, and the big the biggest point there is, um, supply remains just so um, low compared to the demand that's been hitting these states um, mm-hmm. that price compression really hasn't happened at all. Like if you know, I've told you about it here in Illinois, people are happy to buy $65 ACE um, uh, just on the medical side. You know, after the adult use tax, people are paying 85, 90 bucks for an eighth, um, something that would just be unheard of. Um, you know, out in the West Coast or up in Canada. Um, and Pennsylvania is very similar. Both these markets do have more supply coming online. Um, but, the, you know, for the near future, at least the next year or two, um, you can expect some pretty, you know, continued strong growth rates as well as mm-hmm. just strong prices. Um, and, ju- and just for reference, that, you know, the $65 eighth is like $18.5 a gram. Um, that's US, right? So that would be probably anywhere from like three to four times what people are paying in Canada. Yeah. Wild. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. And, and you're saying basically, and we've had this conversation before, but you're saying that you feel that pricing is sustainable, at least in the short to medium term, let's say, you know, one, you know, 12 to 18 months, let's say, because it's so supply constrained. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's a combination of it being supply constrained as well as GTI essentially having the maximum scale you can achieve in those respective markets. Um, you know, two grow houses of 21 and then the maximum of 10 retail here. You can really take advantage of those, uh, the vertical integration margins where you, you know, capture the wholesale market, the wholesale right. margin as well as the retail margin. Right. So you're getting scale as well as verticality, as well as you're in a, a fantastic market. Right. Yeah. They're essentially aiming to be a, you know, a mini true leave um, in, in these individual markets. Um, right, right, and, and right. that's why they they can you know at least in those these markets they can start to replicate you know the just the crazy margins you'll you'll see on TrueLeave side. Right, right, fair enough. Okay, so Illinois, Pennsylvania, you feel those are the major drivers today. Um, you know, uh, is it is it safe to say you know kind of New Jersey uh, or sorry, is, do you feel Nevada is a big driver right now? Yeah, I mean Nevada obviously took a tremendous hit under COVID and is probably the state that will be most affected for the next, you know, as long as the country is affected um, by the virus. Um, So that's definitely placed a slight hindrance on, you know, on their development there. But they do have, you know, the largest retail footprint in the state at 13 stores. Um, And the Essence brand in general uh, is extremely well known and well respected uh, in in the area. So I think, you know, it probably doesn't have as high of a growth rate. It's probably a, a significant driver of revenue currently. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, I guess the long-term upside is, you know, not, not as high as other States, but yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned New Jersey. I feel like New Jersey is definitely going to be a significant driver for them going forward. Um, you know, 12 licenses for a state, um, you know, that's the size of Illinois. Like it, it's a tremendous opportunity, both on a margin perspective and just on a sheer demand perspective. Right, um, right, right, right. As, okay. As that market develops. Great. So let's get into the actual numbers. Uh, tell us about Q2 and, and kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, so Q2 is definitely exciting, you know, especially, uh, you know, with the circumstances around COVID, you know, knowing that both Massachusetts and Nevada faced severe shutdowns during the quarter. Yep. Um, you know, the general analyst consensus was going again, was that it was going to be a relatively flat quarter. Um, so to see the, you know, a significant jump, they saw revenue jump from 102 million in Q1 up, up to right under 120 million in Q2, which was so almost 20% growth. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there's no way of exactly estimating what they lost out on in Nevada and Massachusetts, but, yep. you know, I think it's pretty fair to say you could have expected another 20% plus quarter had it been a more normal. Um, so, so the top line growth was definitely strong, which is, which you of course want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, as you move down, uh, we, we can see that adjusted EBITDA expanded from 25 and a half million in Q1 up to 35 and a half million in Q2. Um, so what, you know, a key thing I look out for here is not just that e- adjusted EBITDA is increasing, but ad- adjusted EBITDA as a proportion of revenue was also increasing. These are called, you know, adjusted EBITDA margins. So you, you went from about 25 to 30%. Exactly. And, and, that's, and that's with the headwinds of mass being shut down by the governor, 
and Nevada just being soft because, you know, tourism. Exactly. Exactly. So to your, to your point, they must be, you know, those margins must be being pulled up by, you know, like the Illinois business must be putting up like 40 to 50% margins to offset that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would expect. And, and I think we've kind of seen that from, you know, operators with more singular focuses, like, you know, not to get off track, but, you know, Terrasend has, is very uh, Pennsylvania focused and we've seen right. the numbers that they've put out. I think Illinois and Pennsylvania offer tremendous margin opportunity and EBITDA opportunity and kind of offsetting both the states that got affected by COVID, but also states that are just coming online for GTI. You know, like California is just, you know, they're trying to get those retail open. Um, you know, Florida is always in development. There's still a lot of markets that aren't really revenue generating and margin accretive at this point. So, you know, that Illinois and Pennsylvania base is definitely supporting these financials. So let's let's uh, I don't want to spend too much time because we've got to move on to the next one. But I think it's important here to understand this point for all the MSOs is that you know, the non-operational or let's say the early stage states, um, those are really pulling down all of your numbers. So when you're when GTI is putting up 30% EBITDA margins in Q2 and it's being dragged down by, you know, the headwinds in Nevada, you know, mass being shut down um, and even just the smaller markets it's in, right? Like it's, they're probably not making money in Florida. They're probably, you know, they're probably losing money in New York, right? Definitely. Um, California, you know, it's just paper licenses, but they might be paying rent on those locations. So, you know, there is drag happening. So that 30% adjusted EBITDA margin is even more impressive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, GTI always has the their enter open scale model, you know, um, something they've, I think they've had for years. Um, and, and now we're really starting to see the benefits as they get some scale within, you know, some of their key markets. Um, so Nick, Talk to us about valuation. Um, how does that compare to kind of, you know, annualized Q2 numbers and how do you feel about it? Yeah. So, you know, GTI and along with the other, you know, big, all of the big four clear, you know, as we have seen, they've rebounded extremely strongly from March and, you know, it definitely was for a reason as, as we saw in these financials. So GTI today is sitting at you know, three to three point two, roughly billion dollars uh, at market close. Right, and these are all going to be U.S. numbers. Yes, yeah, all U.S. Um, and then you know, through the first two quarters of of, of this year, you know, we're sitting roughly at uh, two hundred, just over two hundred and twenty million. Um, from from what I've seen, a, a, a rough an analyst consensus for 2020 2020 sorry it's just around 500 million um which sounds fairly reasonable to me given their you know growth profile so far and what they've been able to achieve through two quarters um so you know we're sitting roughly at you know six times sales a little over mm -hmm. um and then looking out to 2021 which of course is you know, it's, it's really hard in this market to predict uh, anything accurately. Sure. Um, but, you know, somewhere in the you know, 600 to 750 range for revenue, I think is realistic um, with continued scale in the EBITDA margins. Right. 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 And, and Nick, so when you're thinking valuations, uh, you know, do you just take like the Q2, annualize it, compare that to the value? Um, 
or how much forward projection do you do? How much do you look at analyst numbers? Like help us understand how you think about it. Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's, you know, probably some, there's probably a different answer for every company to some extent. Um, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier is you really got to be following all aspects of these companies just to see, you know, what's their current footprint, but also, you know, what's the potential um, lo- looking out to the future and how much runway do they really have? Um, so for, you know, for a company uh, like like GTI, they have 48 retail stores open today, but licenses for just under 100. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, so they're roughly only 50% built out today. So for a company like GTI, I'll definitely factor in future growth a, a, a lot more um, just because, right. you know, both their underlying markets are, are growing, but they also just have the licenses to continue to expand. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think this is kind of the secret sauce of where we are in cannabis. Um, and is that if you if you're looking at MSOs, I think what you need to do is you need to annualize the, you know, the Q2 or whatever, the latest quarter results you need, this is what I always do. At least you look at the valuation compared to the current results. And then, you know, that's the easy part. The hard part is looking forward and saying what next, right? And it goes to our earlier point about, you know, you really have to go license by license, market by market and say, you know, where do we think we are? They are in Illinois, right? Where do we think they are in Pennsylvania? Um, when do you know how do we see the the opportunity in New Jersey and New York and and uh, you know Florida going forward right so do you, you know you don't have to be perfectly right in your analysis you know to the dollar of this is how much money they're going to make um, but it's it's you know doing this kind of analysis will help you understand that look like you know yes the stock has doubled but actually there's a lot more room to run once this market and this market come online yeah yeah absolutely especially with, you know, here in the States, like uh, an individual state, you know, for example, like New Jersey, I feel like everyone's talking about it with something like that on the horizon to go legal. I mean, the ramifications for the revenue ramp, as soon as that switches on, like we saw here in Illinois, can be dramatic. Um, And if you look out for the next couple of years, you can kind of kind of see a, a, a timeline where we have you know, one to two states every every year or so that does switch to adult use sales, um, right? And, and that's an event where you know sales can jump four to ten x, um, you know, fairly quickly, right? Um, so you know, that, that you definitely have to be watching all potential. You know, what what are their current markets, but also what's what's the potential in the future? Yeah, yeah, great point. Okay, last point on GTI, Nick. Uh, valuation today is three point two billion US. Uh, how do you feel about that? What do you see going forward? Um, I mean, I, I think GTI today, um, you know, has definitely earned the premium where, where it's valued along with the, you know, the other top three or four. Um, I think by most metrics, uh, like Cureleaf has earned, you know, other than like canopy growth, but um, Cureleaf has earned like one of the biggest multiples. Um and GTI and Cresco are usually just behind. Um, so I think GTI, the current run that we've seen, it was long overdue um, for a company that has really been executing on their plan. Um, but I, I, looking out, you know, to 2021, 
um, I'm expecting a very similar growth profile and I'm expecting similar, you know, improved operating margins. Uh, so looking out to next year, I could easily see this, you know, as, as another double. Nice. Okay. And, and I'll, I'll give you a, you know, maybe I'm being influenced because, you know, I'm friends with you guys and the various members of the, uh, the GTI mafia, but, uh, you know, I, I've, this is actually the one that I've been buying back on the dips. Um, you know, it's, it gives me a little bit of indigestion to buy things after they've run. But, uh, you know, when I look at the footprint, I look at the, the growth trajectory for 2021, 2022, you know, the, the flipping of New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania to adult adult use, um, all of that makes me feel very bullish. But beyond that, um, I think people are lumping the big four together right now, and they might not be appreciating the operational and brand excellence that I think GTI carries with it. And, you know, this, this MSO limited license model, I think this will be the wave for the next few years because it has a lot of room to run, but eventually brands will matter. Um, and operational excellence will, will continue to, to matter. So that's where I think that GTI is kind of in some ways being overlooked and just being lumped in with the rest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to their credit, I feel like they've approached everything really well. They, you know, during the hype of 2018, they didn't overextend themselves um, and they really kept to their core competency um, of, you know, just very diligent capital allocation um, always treating shareholders money like their own, you know, only expanding into markets that made sense. Um, and I think that, you know, we're just starting to see the dividends pay off. Um, you know, they have a fairly wide footprint, but they're able to maintain extremely sh- strong operating margins, even despite it. And, and then, like you said, I think, you know, long term, you know, Cresco has done this well, too. This ultimately will be a CPG industry. Um, and GTI has been very keen on, you know, developing their internal brands, um, pushing them through their, you know, various retail outlets. Um, and I think, you know, Rhythm and Incredibles and all of those, you know, some over time become household names um, as they're pushed across all these, you know, various markets. For sure. For sure. That's a longer term game, but that is, you know, that is on the horizon, right? It's not not next year, but I think it's slowly building. So. So with that, let's let's jump on to the next one, um, and I'll take the lead on this one. This is this is True Leaf. So this is the king and queen of Florida. Um, this is the you know the monster of the South. Uh, you know my own perspective is truly was my biggest position before I dumped everything. Uh, I've spent a lot of time on this one. I've spent you know time in Florida learning really about the market. Uh, I met with Kim Rivers I think twice now. Uh, so. So look, I, I mean, this was one that we were really championing last year when people had, you know, kind of moved on from it because it was it's essentially a single state operator. Uh, look, TrueLeave has operations, uh, you know, in mass. They're they're uh, kind of pre revenue. They're they're still building out their grow, uh, yet to open a retail location, um, and that will be more of a wholesale model. You know, they've got small little operations in Connecticut and and California. Um, and, and, you know, recent news that they're looking at West Virginia, but really this is a single state operator. I mean, the truly story is really the Florida story. Uh, and that's not to be overlooked. I mean, Florida remains in my eyes, one of the most, uh, the most promising medical market, but probably 
the most promising uh, market in terms of turning adult use. So, you know, just just for comparison, uh, Illinois right now, you know, is run rating somewhere like one to one point two billion dollars, although it keeps going up month over month. Um, Florida is going to do roughly a billion medical only, which is which is crazy to think about. Wild. Yeah, absolutely nuts. Right. And, you know, you take uh, that the number of licenses, you've only got 22 cultivation licenses in Florida. Of those 22 licenses, something like eight or 10 of them are really just paper licenses at this point. Um, And then there's another kind of four or five, which are barely operational, right? Like a MedMen license, which, which really doesn't have much going on. So you really only have maybe eight to 10 real players in Florida, uh, all chopping up a billion dollar market, which is still growing in leaps and bounds. Um, and I would still say don't sleep on Florida because when I look at the OMMU weekly data over the last couple of weeks and even the last couple of months through COVID, the patient count and the patient growth has accelerated. So we used to get roughly 2,000 to 2,500 new active patients a week. Um, now it's anywhere from like 3,500 to 5,000. Like last week was another 4,000 people. So uh, that hasn't actually started showing up in the number of units sold, which is a little confusing. Um, but it is popping up in the number of active patients. And I think we will start to see it reflected in the actual units moved. Yeah, no, it's no doubt a fantastic market. And you, you guys talked on this show about it a lot. You know, the obvious vertical integration requirements, you know, adds a whole different element to it. Um, but like you said, the if anyone else doesn't know, look at the OMMU data that Florida reports. You know, when we were talking about doing, you know, due diligence on every state market that, that's out there, Florida offers mm-hmm. a unique opportunity to directly follow week by week, you know, the, the development of, of, of this market and who's do, doing well within it. Yeah, the the great point. I mean, listen, the company level data we get week by week, um, it's almost like a cheat code. Like we can see weeks before the Q2 results came out with TrueLeave, you know, you could sit there and do the math and be like, oh my God, they're going to they're gonna grow by 30% this quarter, Right. So if you just think about how mature of a market it is, for it to grow 30% sequentially, quarter over quarter, it's mind-boggling. It's truly, truly mind-boggling. And you look at Florida, I mean, a year ago, they had flour introduced and the market went bananas. Um, Later this year, hopefully, edibles will come in. Now, edibles will be a smaller piece of the pie, but still, that represents 15 20% of the market uh, that's not there yet, right? So you're probably going to see another significant uptick when that comes in. So uh, it remains a really, really impressive market. And it's not to be ignored, the potential of this market and the importance this market will play in the future. So with that in mind, you know, let's talk about actually TrueLeave. Um, it, it, it's funny, it TrueLeave kind of remains the last obvious candidate for doing some kind of blockbuster M&A because, you know, the, the what we're seeing now, and Nick, you and I talked about this before, is that a lot of these MSOs that, you know, maybe would like to combine, their footprints are overlapping too much now. 
So it's too complicated to put the pieces together because you have to start disposing of certain uh, licenses because you go over the cap, right? But TrueLeaf does not have that problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, TrueLeaf, you know, for a long time now has seemed like a, especially, you know, given their increasing positive cash flow and just a very sound, and you'll, you'll get into it with the numbers, but a very sound capital position. They seem just, you know, ripe for M&A activity. Um, and we've talked about this a lot. There's a lot of, you know, mid-size three to five state MSOs out there, you know, public or private that would complement the TrueLeaf portfolio extremely well, you would think. Yeah, you know, when I when it was my largest position, I would I would kind of sit and, and daydream sometimes uh, about, you know, wouldn't this company's footprint, you know, I take it and I slap it next to TrueLeave and it just looks beautiful. Um, and what you realize actually is, you know, you can play that game with most major private MSOs. So, uh, you know, of the MSOs, you know, who's in Florida already? Harvest, Curaleaf, uh, GTI. Um, not Cresco because they canceled their Vitacan acquisition. Uh, yeah, Columbia, so, Columbia Care, Acreage, essentially all the, yeah. although Acreage yeah, yeah. might sell theirs. So. Yeah, Columbia Care, Acreage, right? But I mean, those are those are yeah, f- fair enough. So who's that? Who le- who does that leave? It leaves Cresco, obviously has a big gap in Florida, um, and then it leaves a bunch of you know uh, a bunch of private MSOs who will probably be public in the next year or two, right? And the obvious ones are. Verano, Ascend, uh, Holistic, and Pharmacan. So all of those companies lack a Florida footprint and would be a perfect complement to TrueLeaf. However, you know, based on what I'm hearing from people in the marketplace, uh, I actually don't think it's likely that TrueLeaf will do blockbuster M and A, which is very disappointing in my eyes. And everything I've heard um, is that basically. TrueLeave has two main problems. One is that they're they're just too cheap. So, uh, and I like that as a shareholder. I like you know I like people who are you know good stewards of capital and are cheap. But you can overdo that too. So, the problem being that you know they want you know to buy everything at a discount. So it's it's super accretive. Um, well, you know at the end of the day, you know these limited license states and MSOs, you know they don't want to give it away for free either, right? So so that's a problem. And then the second piece is TrueLeave is very, very concerned about lowering their margins. So, you know, they don't want to buy, you know, this this MSO that has 30% EBITDA uh, because right now TrueLeave has 50% EBITDA and that would lower their, their EBITDA overall, right? But, you know, again, you can overdo that because your 50% EBITDA is maybe not replicable across the industry. It's maybe not easy to, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to find another company that's doing that, especially one that has scale. Yeah. And I think that point in general brings up just an interesting comparison, you know, of these top four that we, you know, that we're looking at. I think TrueLeave is, you know, a perfect example of a company who remained extremely conservative and, you know, just doubled down on the Florida market routinely um, yep. while, while everyone else is expanding. And you got, you know, you can compare their margins and their execution to, you know, maybe one step further. You'll have like a GTI who, you know, who has expanded, but has done so methodically and, you know, kind of in concentrated markets. And then, you know, on the complete other side, we have Cureleaf, 
who you know has just completed blockbuster deal after blockbuster deal um and now has one of the widest footprints you know across the entire uh u.s Uh, right 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 and but you know to that point though nick it's it's this is what kind of concerns me about true leave and i think you know when people were down on true leave and the price was really low i was kind of pounding the table on it because i was like look people don't understand how good florida is and how much it's going to grow right um and it still is a phenomenal market and the growth is still ahead of it, right? But the problem is now I think people are maybe when they look at Truly, um, you know, I, I think I'm getting concerned they're going to miss the boat on doing the blockbuster acquisition. And, you know, there was news uh, this week about uh, West Virginia and that they're going to be, you know, they're, they're ch- pursuing a license in West Virginia. Well, you know, OK, that's interesting. You know, it's a state of, you know, not even two million people. Uh, maybe if it's super limited license, that could be interesting. Uh, but, you know, that's a very small move and it's not really going to move the needle for True Leaf, in my opinion. And, you know, that that really is going to take time to build out. Um, and it, it's not big enough of a move for it to be really exciting, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, I think there's a clear runway for them, you know, just to continue executing in, in Florida um, but, you know, if you wait too long at, you know, prices, you know, for a company that's very conservative asset prices in, in other states and, you know, the ability to complete M&A in an accretive way um, is, is just going to get costly the, the longer they wait. Yeah. And, and at a certain point, it's not possible, right? Because, right. look, I mean, the, their share price has tripled. So that's a good thing because that's their currency, right? So they can go out now and say, OK, you know, MSO, here's my stock. I'm going to buy you. Um, however, the flip side of that is, you know, now the, now that company might say, well, hang on, I'm not sure I want your stock at these prices, right? It's, it's too elevated or it's too, it's too, uh, valued for me to really, you know, uh, make this work. So it's a bit of a tug of war in that, in that sense. And, you know, the way MSOs are being valued today, you know, they're getting a premium while single state operators are trading at a little bit of a discount. Um, and, you know, that that might be fair. It might not be. But, you know, when you look at a single state, no matter how good the state is, you inherently carry a lot more risk. And, you know, Florida legislature keeps, you know, a couple guys keep trying to pass these wacky things like, you know, limiting THC to 2% or all these this kind of stuff. And so far it's been shot down, but you never know, right? And And that's really, I think, what makes you nervous as an investor about betting too heavily on a single state operator. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, you could just look at, I mean, this is an extreme example with, with COVID, but if, if you were a single state operator in Massachusetts or in, in Nevada, you'd be seriously challenged. Um, and in, in a state like Florida, that kind of has weird rules being, you know, with vertical integration required, with very limited licenses. If either of those changes in a dramatic way, you know, truly business changes in a dramatic way. Um, and it's, you know, like you said, much riskier than, you know, if you look at GTI and Curaleaf, they have, you know, they had Nevada and Massachusetts exposure, but the, you know, the financials improved nonetheless because they have this wide footprint and can kind of absorb, you know, one-time issues in in a given state. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're kind of, you know, alluding to something we'll talk about in a minute, but let's get into the numbers. Cause I mean, look, Trueleaf has always been a financial story. I mean, it, it has been an unmitigated financial success. Um, 
And I think every criticism or concern about the company has been shrugged off by exceptional financial performance. So uh, Q2, really, really simple numbers, uh, $120 million of revenue, which was about 30% sequential growth, which is unreal. And uh, about 60%, oh, sorry, $60 million of EBITDA, so about 50% on the nose uh, EBITDA. So it's a, a real simple calculation. Uh, if you annualize that, you get $240 million of EBITDA for the year. And the company has roughly 116 million shares outstanding. Uh, if you take it at a $27 Canadian price, you get to about, you know, just over 3 billion Canadian, which is about 2.3 billion US. So 240 million EBITDA, 2.3 million, 2.3 billion US, 10 times EBITDA multiple on, you know, Q2 annualized numbers. I mean, any way you slice it, that is cheap. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've, they've, not only did they have impressive, you know, numbers in industry leading margins to begin with, but quarter after quarter, they've improved on those margins, um, which, which has just been incredible to watch both on, both on a gross margin side and on EBITDA. So let, let's talk about, uh, I guess, you know, get, getting to the end of the, the true leaf part here, kind of, I would exercise some caution on true leaf. So I, look, I just said it's cheap and, you know, people should know by now I love anything cheap. Um, but you know, the, the challenge I would say with TrueLeave is that it's got a couple of kind of risk factors, which people aren't talking about because they just don't think they know, right? So some, they know some, they don't. So there's basically three court cases that present, uh, some really interesting challenges and risk for TrueLeave. So first of all, the really good one is that the Supreme court, uh, in June, May or June heard the argument that. Uh, recreational should be on the ballot for 2022. And so we'll know, you know, in the next, I don't know, six months or so, maybe if, if that goes through and if that goes through, I mean, that is an absolute game changer. It could solve every pro potential problem that truly has, because if Florida goes wreck in 22, I mean, watch out, it's going to blow the doors off the place, right? It's going to be probably one of the most amazing markets we've ever seen. So, you know, that, that's the good news. Um, the bad news associated with that is that if it got on the ballot for 2022, you still need to get over 60% uh, of the vote to go wreck. And no recreational measure has ever got 60% on the ballot. Le uh, medical has, but wreck has not. So not to say it can't happen, but it's just harder than the typical 50% that's required. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely something to, to keep an eye out for because um, even some of the, you know, what are typically considered the liberal West Coast states, it's 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 hard to get to 60 percent in any state. It's tough. It's really, really tough. Right. And usually these things kind of squeak by 55, 45 or whatever. Yep. Uh, look, they, they got over 60 percent for medical. That's how they got it passed originally in Florida. But again, like that is a risk that if they say tomorrow wrecks on the ballot, People aren't going to care. They're going to bid this thing up like crazy. But I can tell you, people are not going to be paying attention to that 60% number when they should be. So just be careful of that. The other two, I think, are much more uh, directly negative for TrueLeave. So uh, first of all, to your point earlier, Nick, I, I know you were kind of alluding to this, vertical integration. There's a case called Floragrown. Uh, it was also in front of the Supreme Court almost the exact same time. They're going back in October for a second round of arguments. And essentially, if Flora Grown wins their case, 
it would dismantle vertical integration in Florida. Um, it could also open the door for new licenses. It's hard to say. We're not sure. But even just taking apart vertical integration, I think, would harm TrueLeave. Um, maybe not immediately overnight. But what that means is that you'd look at a company like MedMen or Harvest or even GTI. Um, they have really limited footprints in Florida. Why? Because if you want to build out and ramp up Florida, you have to build out your cultivation. You have to build out your processing. You need probably 30 to $50 million minimum to really ramp that state up and maybe more like $100 million. So that's really been a huge moat for TrueLeave. And if you take that away, suddenly the market becomes a lot more efficient. And you know, Liberty can sell their products to MedMen retail stores. And instead of truly capturing 50% of the market of the market at 50% EBITDA margins, you know, you could see that being spread more evenly across some of the other players in the state. Yeah, yeah. And you know, obviously truly would benefit from new wholesale opportunity, but but like you said, one of the key you know, attractiveness of their retail stores now is just they simply have more product available across more SKU factors um, and, and a vertical integration ends in, in a MedMen store. You know, they're obviously not keen on developing their own products. The, you know, they'll be happy to sell truly products in their stores along with everything else. Um, right. And now, right. The, you know, now the customer is much more inclined to probably go to, you know, what's convenient rather than just the TrueLeaf store. Yeah, and people don't understand. Like, TrueLeaf obviously outperforms by a huge margin, right? Phenomenal company. Oper- like, just want to mention that operationally, they're killing it. But when you go to a TrueLeaf dispensary, like, you have to wait. You go there, there's like a lineup. Like, it's not that people like to wait in lines, right? It's that they have the best products and the best product selection, and they have a really good breadth breadth of impressive products. So uh, and they know how to market accordingly. Like they know how to say, okay, I know some people like, you know, really good, uh, you know, shatter. So we're going to offer a special on shatter to get people in the door and then we'll sell them flour while they're here. Right. Which is not discounted or whatever, some combination of these kind of things. Right. But, you know, and then people might say, well, I want to go to Liberty cause I like, you know, their, their vape pens. Well, Liberty doesn't have the shatter that you want, right? Because that requires hydrocarbon extraction and they haven't invested in that. So it, it's, you know, there's a, there's a concept in, um, in retail called, called building the basket, which is you get somebody in the store to buy the cheap milk, the milk's at the back of the store. By the time they buy the milk, you know, by the time they pick the milk up and get to the front, they've picked up two or three other things and they've built their basket. So you had the you know the lost leader or the incentive to get them in the store, but you made it up in the other things, and you actually ended up making money on them. And I think TrueLeave knows that, and they perfected that model. And if you take away vertical integration, I think it would have a negative impact on their business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, th- I definitely agree with you there. Um, I think there's somewhat a question of you know how quickly would competition move in the state? You know, just in this capital constrained environment i think that's, yeah, one, that's one of the big thing that has benefited them so far today um you know just you, there's several operators i mean like you mentioned medmen acreage who are you know have licenses but are barely operational um but you know like you said if there's if there's no vertical integration then then you'll just have new potentially just new you know either pure cultivation pure processing or pure retail licenses open up 
all of which just leads to added competition for true leave and kind of you know erodes at what has traditionally been um, an important part of their retail model yeah absolutely and then last thing is um you know kim river's husband uh is on trial uh you know he's being you know really taken to the mattresses by the fbi uh it is you know it's not a a small matter like they're really coming after this guy you know if if you want to dig into it i encourage you to read about it um now you might say hey who cares it's her husband you know whatever well he is an insider of the company he does all their construction and i saw actually even in the last financials that they mentioned him by name in the notes uh because you know some some money was owned owed to one of his companies for the construction so look trueleaf is a tightly held stock 80% of it is held by four people one of who is kim rivers um so what that means is that the stock can really rip and that's what part of why you've seen it rip so hard upwards um is because it's there's a very tight float but that also means that if somebody wants to get out, one of those four people want to get out because there is an upcoming trial or because the trial doesn't go favorably, you could also see that get impacted on the way down. And that actually is what happened last year is that there used to be five holders uh, and one of them just dumped the shares aggressively to get out and absolutely tank the price uh, almost 50%, I think. So you could absolutely see that. It's a huge risk. And regardless, it's going to be a massive news story when it happens. Uh, this trial has been delayed like three or four times now. It was supposed to happen last year or beginning of this year. And now it's been pushed to January of next year. Could easily get pushed again. Who knows? Uh, but, you know, I just that remains an issue for me. Um, and as such, you know, truly might be decent value here. But I need to see it get, you know, cheaper before I could really start buying it back again. Yeah, that sounds like a good synopsis and definitely something to look out for. Great. Okay, let's let's keep rolling because we're we're uh, you know we're going to go a little over here, but that's okay. So, uh, Nick, do you want to give us a quick summary of uh, Cresco? Yeah, yeah. So, so Cresco, you know, very similar story in some ways to what I described for GTI, um, in that you know currently right now Illinois and Pennsylvania are driving um, a lot of the current numbers. Um, one major difference for Cresco is they have um, significant California exposure, um, primarily through their origin house acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so on the, you know, and the, their footprint is definitely a little bit more narrow overall. They, they do have exposure in other states. They have a Massachusetts license. Um, they have, I think, a Michigan Grow license. They have a New York license. They have Ohio, um, but it's definitely highly concentrated in. Pennsylvania, Illinois, and California currently. Right. And a couple of holes in the footprint, right? So no Nevada. Uh, and they, they had the trike acquisition, which they canceled. Uh, no Florida. Florida. They, they had the Vitacan acquisition, which they canceled. Um, and no New Jersey. No New Jersey, which is a huge you know negative in, in today's world. But they do have New York and they do have Ohio and they do have Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just looking at this quarter a, a, a little bit, um, you know, I think Cresco, like when we talk about the big four, a lot of people sometimes, you know, would say the big three and Cresco, mm-hmm. um, I think just mainly cause you know, the revenue is a little bit behind the other three, but also like kind of the quality, the underlying margins were s- still a bit behind. I think Cresco, you know, especially with their top line 
revenue beat um, where we saw we saw revenue go from 66 million in Q1 all the way to 94 million in Q2. Um, so that's like 50% right there. Yeah, close to it. So that was the largest quarter over quarter revenue gain of, of any of the top four. And I think, you know, across essentially all of the major MSOs. Um, so that was definitely the big, you know, highlight just because they, you know, have highlighted their ongoing cultivation and processing expansion in Illinois and Pennsylvania mm-hmm, and how mm-hmm. it was primarily going to come online in Q3. Um, so I think people expected a, a slightly more muted Q2. So this this revenue beat um, w- was definitely really impressive. And I think Illinois, especially with a few of their recent retail openings, uh, drove a lot of those numbers. Right, right. And, and um, so, oh, and by the way, we didn't mention they have Arizona, which, oh, you right. know, yes. could easily go like, we'll, we'll likely go wreck. Uh, there's some, I think it's still up for debate on the ballot, but, you know, probably will get smoothed over. Uh, and that could obviously be a massive market as well. Yep. Yeah. They don't have the biggest footprint there, but they'll no doubt pursue a, a good wholesale strategy. Um, so Nick, talk talk to me about uh, adjusted EBITDA because I know that you know we had some concerns with how they're getting to these numbers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this I would say just pointing out right from the beginning is their adjusted EBITDA figure. They they also report something called operational gross margins, and I would say both of these I I ultimately just disregard altogether because they are very you know massaged statistics that remove a number of kind of expenses and variables that other companies do not. Um, and I'm not saying they don't necessarily have an argument for like, you know, these are kind of like they're saying, trying to say that, hey, we have these one time costs that, you know, aren't going to be present in the future. Um, but I ultimately try to look at, you know, the real bottom line and, and apples apples comparison across companies. Um, so, so they did report, you know, adjusted EBITDA going from 3.2 million in Q1 up to 16, a little 16 and a half million in Q2. Um, just something to watch out for, though, is that, you know, they, they took out quite a few adjustments in order to arrive at that figure. Um, so- yeah. And and great, you know, uh, you know, again, like something we one of the themes we have here is like, don't just read the headlines like, you know, you got to dig into the data for yourself. Uh, you know, if you're not looking at how they get to adjusted EBITDA or you're not doing your own adjusted EBITDA, you could just kind of take that at face value and you go, hey, Cresco's made it. But actually, their adjusted EBITDA is, is really being really uh, massaged, as you said. Yeah, d- definitely. And th- I think that's why uh, it's important to look at it in conjunction with, you know, kind of all the other traditional variables, operating income. And then a big thing I, I look at is operational cash flow and free cash flow. Um, so and, operational cash flow for Cresco, I mean, talk to me. This should be substantially worse than the other two, right? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, last quarter, Q1 was actually one of their largest uh, operational cash flow losses in history. It was 40, okay. $40.1 million. Um, and a lot of a big part of that was they were closing Origin House, which itself had a pretty significant OCF loss. Yep. Um, as well as just various, you know, there's costs with integrating a new company. Um, so to, to Cresco's credit, they improved that notably from a loss of 40 million to a loss of just under 10 million in Q2. Um, right. So right, a, right. a tremendous improvement, but, you know, definitely worth noting that, uh, you know, in comparison to, I didn't mention earlier, but GTI had positive 33 million in, in OCF. 
truly mm-hmm. I believe had positive 53 million in OCF. Wow. Um, and then cure leaf we'll, we'll get to later, uh, but I think was right around and, positive, like 25. Um, and sorry. And sorry. One thing just for everybody to note is that because of COVID, a lot of uh, income taxes and various taxes were delayed. So, uh, Q2 ended up being a really strong cash flow quarter for everybody because a lot of the taxes they should have paid in Q2 were pushed. So we might see that get get beaten up in Q3. Yep, yep, great, great point. Um, and so yeah, so I would just say overall, you know, Cresco, you know, they had a, a significant improvement on the top line revenue growth. Um, their you know adjusted EBITDA did expand. Their operating expand expenses actually went down overall on the on the quarter from fifty one million to uh, just over fifty. Um, so we did see you know notable improvements both on top line growth and in their operating margins. But you know compared to the other three, that they're still a step behind. Um, mm-hmm. But we are starting to see the benefits of you know unlike the others, Cresco has been CPG wholesale focused from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not nearly as retail exposed. Um, so, so we're really just starting to see the benefits of real wholesale scale coming online for Cresco. And, and, and I expect that to continue into Q3 and Q4 even more Got so. It. Got it. So talk to us about valuation and where you see it. Sure. So so Cresco, um, I think as of right, as of after today, it's roughly valued at $2.6 billion. Um, you know, it similarly has run well uh, since, since the March low, um, although slightly less than the, the other three. Um, th- this one, is, you know, is tough just because I, I think a lot of people had certain revenue and EBIT expectations that got altered, you know, fairly significantly after um, the consensus beat that they had this quarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think conservatively, you can, you know, see a pathway to you know, 400, 425 million revenue this year. Um, they're probably still, um, I mean, like we talked about earlier, their adjusted EBITDA figure isn't exactly accurate. So I expect their actual EBITDA to still be slightly negative in, in 2020. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But we're expecting, I, I think most analysts expect a significant ramp going into 2021 um, as they, you know, kind of grow into their current cultivation footprint. Um, so I think, you know, compared to, you know, they get compared to GTI a lot. I understand why, um, you know, it's relatively lower valued currently. Um, but I also think that, you know, potentially creates an opportunity going ahead. Um, given, I I think we will see tremendous growth going into Q3, Q4, um, a little bit more so than we see with uh, GTI and Cure Relief. Um, Interesting. More, more, and, that, and that's from wholesale coming online, or, or what do we? What is the driver of that Q three Q four growth? Yeah, I, I want to say it's pretty much all from uh, Pennsylvania and Illinois wholesale coming online. I mean, Illinois especially, we've seen them uh, that they've they're expanding from thirty five thousand square feet in Illinois at the start of the year up to two over 200,000. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, we, you and me have talked to a number of the private operators here in Illinois as well, that right. they're, they're going to be significantly larger than 
almost all of their competitors here in Illinois. Right. And it's, right, a, right. And it's a market, you know, like we discussed earlier, that is significantly supply constrained. So I think they're going to see the benefits uh, of that um, compared to, I think, Illinois or in Illinois, especially compared to like GTI or Cureleaf with grassroots. They're just a little bit further behind in terms of their cultivation expansion, even if it's just a quarter or two. Um, I think Cresco will probably see near term upside. The, the key just to watch is do can they improve their margins along with it? Because that's, you know, that's definitely something that, especially with their California exposure, hasn't been proven uh, in the same way that, you know, GTI and TrueLeap have. Yeah. And, and look, Origin House is a company that I got pretty burned on last year. Um, and I think that is creating significant drag. Like, I think Cresco has helped clean it up but I think it's creating operational drag. Um, now, that being said, you know, California is a market that looks like it's turning around. And, you know, like we just said, the next wave of the industry, I mean, look, the current wave and the, the short medium term wave is the limited license model, right? But brands are going to matter, right? And, you, you, you know, you and I both know how important California is for the incubation of brands. And Origin House will be, you know, in in a perfect position to say, look, these are the brands we should buy or these are the brands we should take over and we can then put them on the Cresco platform. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think they've pursued that CPG oriented strategy from the beginning. You know, here in Illinois, they hired a a local chef to produce their like Mindy's edibles line. Um, And that was something just, you know, early on that felt fit into their philosophy. So the origin house acquisition, you know, and potentially introducing like the winning brands that they have there into their, you know, these Midwest and East coast markets, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in theory, it it presents a tremendous opportunity. They just, you know, they haven't quite proven uh, that the model works yet, but this quarter was a notable step in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, look, $10 million of, of burn, it's not great, but for a company of Cresco's size, it's not too bad. But I would just caution that there could be easily another $10 million of tax in there that's not being uh, paid for. So, you know, that will be a drag. But like you said, if Q3 and Q4, you know, uh, we see the cultivation expansions come online, you know, that could turn it around. So final thought on Cresco, Nick, how do you feel about valuation? Um, I mean... I'd say if, you know, Cresco would be a, another solid holding as within an MSO portfolio. Um, I think that they'll start to grow into um, a similar type of, you know, EBITDA margin that, you know, we expect from the other big four. So I think looking out towards um, 2021, I, you know, I, I think I expect a fairly similar growth pro- profile to a, a GTI or true leave. Um, and, you know, I could see them, you know, if they get to, I think re- revenue should ramp up pretty quickly in 2021, you know, closer to 700, 750 million. Um, and I think EBITDA will start, you know, going up along with it. Um, so I think, you know, if you put it, I think they could be valued, you know, say around, you know, three and a half billion, four billion by this time next year, um, which is just a little bit under two X. Yeah, I, I think they're going to continue to lag GTI. Just when I look at their footprint, it's not it's not as tight, right? Um, and the the cash flow burn, you know, remains a concern for me. Uh, doesn't mean it's a bad buy. 
Um, by the way, I think all these companies have the room to succeed here, right? It's not uh, it's not a winner take all. Um, but I think like if my prediction would be you're going to continue to see them lag in terms of adjusted EBITDA, uh, you know, when you calculate it appropriately, because, uh, you know, the footprint is just not up to the quality, I think, of what GTI is working with. Yeah, no, I, I agree there. I think I would prefer GTI at, at current prices. I, I, I like their, you know, cash to debt ratio a bit more as well. Cresco, unfortunately, took on some rather bad debt from Origin House that they, you know, have to pay a fairly substantial interest rate on, and I think 20% plus. Um, and, and GTI has managed that a lot better. So when you think mm-hmm, of that mm-hmm. in combination with the fact that, you know, Cresco is still burning cash while GTI is cash flow positive. Um, right. I, I think right, you right, can right. subscribe that premium. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, agree completely. So not to say it's a bad company, but, you know, you just got to. And look, if the valuation falls back, then again, it becomes more interesting. Right. Um, I do also think, though, last point on Cresco, like I think there's an opportunity there still to do some creative M&A. Like I think Florida remains a whole. Um, you know, Nevada, maybe I'm not, I'm not crazy about Nevada right now. Uh, but definitely, you know, New Jersey, although there's not many licenses to pick up anymore in New Jersey, but you know, there, there's an interesting opportunity and, you know, if you want to have fun, you can imagine a world where Cresco and Trulieve end up merging. Although I don't think that would happen. It certainly is fun to think about. Yeah. Yeah. That'd, that'd be quite the company. Yeah. I don't see Tr- Kim doing that. Yeah, but I mean, then you know. That being said, like Cresco could pick up. You know, you look at in the market right now. There's Liberty Health. There's Cansortium, which which is fluent in Florida. There's AltMed. Um, all of these would be interesting additions to the Cresco footprint, uh, and from a margin perspective, would actually be super super accretive. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, it definitely makes sense in a, in a lot of ways. Cool. Okay. So. Uh, on to the next one here. This will, this will probably be our longest episode ever, but, but I think it's important. So on to the last one here, which is Cura Leaf. Um, and I'll, I'll kick this off, but, but Nick, feel please, please feel free to chime in. Uh, this company, just to start off, this company is an absolute monster. Um, and I don't mean that necessarily in a good way. I just mean it's so large and complicated. Trying to get your head around it is quite difficult. And even just reading the financials gave me a bit of a headache because, uh, there's a lot of complexity built in here. Uh, that being said, you know, I always shied away from Cura Leaf because of the valuation. And I always felt like it was so much more expensive than, you know, GTI or Cresco or Trulieve. But, you know, preparing for this podcast, I went through uh, and shout out to stateside cannabis and uh, stateside cannabis investors for their, you know, phenomenal uh, uh, resource for, for being able to look at these companies easily. Um, and I went through and I, and I listed out the footprint, uh, and Nick, I have to say, like, this is a really, really compelling footprint. Absolutely. Um, I mean, to, to Cure Leaf's credit, unlike the acreages of the world, unlike the harvest of the world, they, you know, pursued a, a very heavy M&A strategy that, you know, that was complemented by, you know, a pretty good record of winning licenses as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, luckily they also had a billionaire backer and Boris Jordan, um, and just, you know, to their credit, really good access to capital, um, you know, since their RTO. Uh, so they've been able to, you know, close on all of their announced acquisitions and, uh, do so, you know, seemingly in a, 
in a fairly accretive way um, to the point today where, you know, you can't think of a market where not only does Cureleaf have exposure to it, but, you know, they're a serious player within that market, um, especially with the, the grassroots acquisition. You know, I talk so much about Illinois and Pennsylvania um, with, with that acquisition closing, Cureleaf is now, you know, a serious player in both states, like, you know, on top of future legalization events in New Jersey and Arizona, you know, on the, on the horizon. So, you know, you name a market and, and Cureleaf is there. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm going to go through the list for you. And, uh, so first of all, this, these are Cureleaf states. Okay. Pre grassroots Cureleaf states, New Jersey, Florida, New York, Ohio, California, Nevada, Mass, Arizona. I mean, you just take a second there and look at some of those states. I mean, New Jersey and Arizona. I don't think there's another company that has both New Jersey and Arizona. Yeah. And they're the number one operator in New Jersey and the number two operator in Arizona right behind Harvest. I mean, you, you just like think about that. You go, OK, damn. Like then you go Florida where they've they've you know, they're neck and neck, not, you know, not close to truly, but they're top five in Florida. Like that is very impressive. Right. That's a market that they stepped on the gas in the last couple of years. Right. Uh, New York, basically non-operational right now, or, or sorry, I should say, you know, not a money making operation right now. But, you know, we can all see that New York is very likely to go legal in the next two years, along with New Jersey. Right. Um, Ohio, like looking to be like the Pennsylvania of the future. Right. Um, California, not a market that we love, but on run rate to do four to five billion dollars, like significant market to be in, right? And and theoretically a market that you can't really ignore as a national cannabis company, right? Um, you know, Nevada and Mass, you know, Mass had its challenges, but should be back now. And, you know, Nevada will see, but again, an important market to be in, right? So that's Cure Relief's footprint before grassroots. Yeah, yeah. And grassroots is a fundamental, you know, change to the company. It's, it's amazing that you could have such, I mean, this is, you know, to, to their credit, one of the last large M and a projects that, you know, the, the portfolios could actually fit into one another. Um, so not only did Cure Relief add several new markets by, you know, uh, merging with or buying out uh, grassroots, they also just achieved, you know, added scale within markets that they were already in. Uh, like Pennsylvania is a, is a great example. Cureleaf recently won um, a, a license where you team up essentially with a, a local like hospital, um, okay. allowing them to open six retail and, and a cultivation and grow. Um, and, and now they are you know teaming up with Grassroots, who is already one of the largest operations in the state with nine current uh, mm-hmm. d- dispensaries, but licenses for 12. Um, right. So, so nine out of 12 are open right now. Yeah. So, so not only did they gain new states with grassroots, they're getting added scale in markets that they were already in. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really phenomenal how complementary these footprints are. So let's go through the grassroots footprint, which is Illinois, Pennsylvania, Maryland. So three very, very important states. I mean, Maryland, you know, you can, you can argue, but that that's often been highlighted by the MSOs as a really good state. What's left? Uh, Vermont, Michigan, North Dakota. I mean, it's basically every state there is to be in. I mean, maybe you're missing Virginia uh, and maybe West Virginia that we talked about, but like, it's everything you could want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
the key thing for them too is that they've been able to you know scale well in you know good strong existing markets um, such that they can kind of support like you said the markets that are either you know not making money today or are pre or pre revenue altogether. Um, yes. So let's let's talk about you know because it's to to an earlier point it's too easy to just say yeah they're in Illinois. Well, what does that mean, right? You need to understand what the scope of operations are. So in Illinois, they've got five dispensaries. Uh, I, I believe they've got licenses for 10. Is that right, Nick? Yeah. Grassroots had the maximum of five medical dispensaries so they can open up five new ones. I, I don't think they've opened up any of them so far. So they haven't done any rec yet? They, they've gotten conversion for their five existing medical to rec. Um, okay. But they have not opened any of their new rec only stores, which which those be those additional five. So they can have five co located stores and five rec only stores. Yeah, same same as GTI and Cresco, the the max retail footprint you can have in the state. Got it. So I mean that alone, opening up five rec only stores, that's huge upside waiting to be unlocked. Yeah, absolutely. Including, I think two of the five are in the Chicago region. Nice. Okay, and then. They have 70,000 feet of cultivation and processing. Now, you have to be careful here. You, When people list these things, they list the building size, not the canopy size. Mm-hmm. Canopy is what matters. So, you know, be a little careful. But 70,000 feet, and they're completing a 55,000-foot expansion in Q3, which we're in right now. Yeah, yeah. Tr- tremendous opportunity. And I think they're carrying out a similar expansion in, in, in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania, so nine out of 12 dispensaries open, another six licenses in hand. Uh, I didn't know about the hospital uh, partnership. That's pretty interesting. Uh, 75,000 feet of cultivation and processing and another expansion. They didn't list the square footage, uh, which is also finishing in Q3. So you look at this and you go, man, this is, first of all, a phenomenal footprint, but there's some serious ramping that's going to happen in Q3, Q4. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the exciting thing. Like, obviously it's a big valuation, but you can see where it's coming from because they have, you know, near term growth in Illinois, Pennsylvania, Florida. Um, but then they also have midterm growth with, you know, Arizona and uh, New Jersey turning legal. And then, you know, looking out long term, some of their, you know, pre-revenue markets, New York um, or, you know, really early markets like Ohio, like those will start to come online as well. So they have, you know, a very clear revenue ramp for the next several years. Absolutely. And, and so let's talk about the grassroots acquisition quickly. Um, you know, I was saying to you when we started this, like, I think this will go down as probably the best M&A we've seen in the industry so far. And, you know, this is what we want to see Trulieve do is go out and pick up a private MSO that is very complementary to their footprint um, and helps them be a major player in the important states where you need to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to their credit, it was an acquisition that just made sense on on, on, on multiple levels um, and gave, I think that was like my one hindrance in investing early, um, was just waiting for this grassroots acquisition to close just because they, you know, I saw Illinois and Pennsylvania as a tremendous opportunity. Um, and now, you know, now they're top, top three or four operators in both those states. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you there. So let's go through the numbers here and uh, let's, let's talk about, 
what this means. Um, and I'm glad actually you and I went over them before because you pointed out here that I had some, I had some gaps in my numbers. So Q2 numbers, $121 million in top line revenue. That's 16% sequential growth quarter over quarter, which by itself, you know, is, is quite good. Um, they actually broke out and said they feel there's $25 million they missed in Nevada and mass. So you put that on top of the 121 and I mean, you're talking like 30% sequential growth. I mean, it is mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. Really impressive on, you know, what was an already pretty large base of revenue. 43% cannabis gross margins. Uh, I know that can be a little confusing because of managed revenue, but let's leave that alone. Uh, 23% adjusted EBITDA, uh, which, you know, is, is right up there, right? We said, we said GTI is at 30 um, now there's, when I went through the adjusted EBITDA, you know, to make sure that we weren't going to, you know, fall, fall for something like Cresco was pulling, there's a $4 million one-time expense. Now, where is that from? I don't know. Um, and when I look at quarter over quarter, they seem to always have like a five, $10 million one-time expense. So it could be from these acquisitions they're doing because acquisitions are not cheap and they have a lot of closing costs. But, you know, something you can kind of argue about. So I would say their adjusted EBITDA is somewhere between 20 and 23%. Okay. Um, Still not bad. $23 million of cash flow, but probably half of that was tax that got deferred. Okay. But still positive. So so still quite good. $122 million of cash, $283 million of debt. They raised another $70 million post uh, quarter close in terms of an equity raise as well as a sale leaseback. And after the deal closed, they closed the grassroots transaction. So, Nick, I think this means that the Q2 numbers don't include the grassroots numbers. Yeah, correct. Outside of that, just the pro forma figure for the revenue that they guided to, which we saw go from, what was it, 147 Q1 to 165. what was interesting, I don't know if you saw this in their call afterwards, someone was asked, one of the analysts were asking if grassroots would be EBITDA accretive. Um, mm-hmm. And it seemed like they, they weren't necessarily indicating that as a yes, um, which was kind of interesting to me. I figured grassroots, given their Illinois PA exposure, would have superior operating margins. Um, right. But it'll be interesting to see. I got, well, definitely, I think they guided to it, but you know, really impressive top line growth in Q3. I think they said north of 200 million. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, you know, like you hinted at, like one of the key things to watch is, you know, how, how does the integration affect their overall margins? Sorry, did you say they, they guided to $200 million of revenue in Q3? I, I think for pro forma, yeah. Pro forma, got it. Okay, so that, and they're saying 165, it was already. So you've got there like a tw- at least 20% sequential growth again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It, okay. Really. Got it. Got it. Well, you know, it, it's, it, it'll be interesting to see because with grassroots, like we said, you know, you've got Vermont, Michigan, North Dakota kind of pulling down everything, maybe Maryland, hard to say, and Illinois and Pennsylvania, although these are great markets, like we're saying, these, these expansions are coming online in Q3. So, you know, how much drag is there operationally? It's kind of hard to say, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and for a company like Cureleaf, there's, you know, there's always going to be some level of drag going on just you know, when you have a 20 plus state footprint, um, you're just going to have a lot of moving parts. Um, but, you know, I, I think we'll start to see 
you know, the benefits of scale come online in some of those key markets that have driven margins for, you know, a company like GTI. So I do, ex- right. I do expect for Curaleaf, you know, good top line growth, but continued, you know, gr- cannabis gross margin expansion and EBITDA expansion. Right, right, right. Yeah. Good, good point. And, um, like it, like, you know, I gotta, I gotta think there's just, we're talking about it. I mean, 20 to 24% adjusted EBITDA, uh, that's with the headwinds in New Jersey, i uh, sorry, Nevada and mass. Right. Um, that's with this giant footprint pulling down, you know, their numbers. Um, and that's pre grassroots acquisition. Like, you know, when I think about that for a second, when all of this is said and done and integrated and looking shiny, like how are they not 30 to 35% EBITDA margins? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, I guess like, you know, if I'm going to play the contrarian, like, could there be a difficulty in, you know, really being a top up operator across so many States? Like, is it at some point, is it almost too many, um, you know, such that they're, you know, the amount of capital they can apply to an individual market, you mm-hmm. know, perhaps that limits them in some way, but it, you know, they've, you know, through their growth, they've maintained a pretty solid, you know, cash to debt position. Um, and, you know, I think they've just scaled in, in the right way, you know, such that like they're really aiming to be a top three or four operator in every state that they're in. Um, mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. you, when you, when you are a top operator, you, you get the benefits, you know, you, the margins are just fund- fundamentally better as well. I think there's a beauty of scale too, right? And you, you bring up a good point. They've bitten off a lot now. Um, I doubt they're going to do a ton of acquisitions, you know, except now they have to chew, right? Like all this all this stuff. And, you know, don't underestimate how hard it is to do a, an integration of, of major companies. Um, however, like once you have this scale across so many markets, uh, like let's say you're weak, for example, in brands or cultivation. It's so much easier when you have this scale to to hire a really good cultivation team and bring them in, you know, across your portfolio or to buy a brand and roll it out across your portfolio. Right. So I do think there's a benefit there. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you know, streamline processes. And, you know, if you do have a a successful brand, I mean, this is at least what they're aiming to do with select um, if you have a successful brand in, in one state, you could potentially bring that across all your states. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, like you said, there are benefits to scale and, uh, you know, just kind of automating processes and, you know, standardizing, you know, all your procedures, um, you can achieve a lot of cost savings that way. So let's talk about, uh, you know, what you had pointed out to me beforehand, which I'm, I'm glad we ch- talked about was, you know, 533 million uh, shares fully diluted. Uh, it's a bit deceiving because that does not include grassroots. And then there's also other acquisitions going on. So it's very confusing to f- try to figure out how many, what is the actual fully diluted share count of this company. And I, my guess is it's going to keep changing quarter over quarter because of the acquisitions, because of the earnouts. So like we've pegged it here around 670 million. Um, you know, if you keep something like 700 million in your mind over time, that might be a better number. Uh, but that, you know, that puts the valuation at a pretty, pretty healthy clip. Yeah. Yeah. Cl- close to 6 billion, you know, which is probably soon to overtake Canopy as the uh, most, you know, highest market cap company in, in the entire world for, for cannabis. Yeah. Right. Right. So 6 billion US. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I, I have to do some thinking about, you know, when you layer on grassroots, when you layer on everything, like, is that worth it? Right. So it's you're talking about two times the price of GTI. Uh, you're almost three times, maybe two and a half times the price of True Leave. Uh, but, you know, you look at the footprint and you go, look, if you gave, you know, GTI $3 billion, could they replicate the footprint? And maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's extremely impressive what they've been able to do with such a, such a large footprint. Um, they, they definitely deserve credit for, you know, handling all the expansion well. So I guess with Curaleaf, we'll have to see what happens. I mean, you know, integration is hard. Let's see how that goes. I'd like to see what the numbers look like once we bring grassroots in. Um, I'd also like to bring you guys your attention to the unlocks. So pre-grassroots, there's a ton of unlocks happening. About 16 million shares get unlocked every three months like clockwork for the next five years. So that's about 325 million shares over the next five years. Uh, Some of them have happened already this year, but you know, it keeps going. So that before represented like 60% of the outstanding shares. Um, And now put on top of that, you know, another 150 million shares. So you're talking about, you know, maybe 70, 80% of the shares uh, are basically brand new shares that are going to be unlocked. So definitely you could see that, you know, especially if we have broader market weakness, there could be a lot of pressure on this stock. Um, and that, you know, depending on where that lands, that might present an interesting opportunity to start buying. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, it's probably a blessing and a curse with all of their M and a, you know, it, it has led them to have this scale, you know, that they have today. Um, but, but like you said, with, with so many moving parts with, you know, all these acquisitions, you're going to have original founders and investors who, you know, are, are a lot of times these are private companies that Cureleaf is buying, um, and they're going to be looking to, you know, cash out in some, in some way. Um, so, so, you know, like you said, uh, d- definitely something to look out for. So I guess last thought on valuation, 6 billion on cure relief. How do you feel? I mean, it's, it's certainly steep, but you know, like, like we've talked about today, you know, the footprint is there, the growth trajectory is there. Um, you know, I think it's crazy, but I think next year, I, I think consensus, especially after, um, you know, what they're forecasting in Q3 for pro forma um, revenue is projected, you know, well over a billion dollars, you know, 1 billion, 1.1 maybe. Um, so if they can get, you know, EBITDA margins, you know, like we talked today, we were guessing around 20 to 24%. Um, I'm assuming, you know, with some of added scale in, in these markets, in these undersupplied markets that we talked about, that they can start getting that closer to like the 30% that we see GTI at, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that's perhaps, you know, 300 million, 350 million in, in EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA in, in 2021 for, for cure relief. Which takes like a 20 times, you know, EBITDA. Yeah. So certainly not, you know, cheap by any means. I think, I think, you know, from what I, what I've seen, cure relief has earned the biggest premium of the big four, um, just on a, you know, sales to EBITDA ratio or, a, or sorry, sales to market cap or EBITDA to market cap. Um, but you know, I can see why, you know, given their footprint and given, you know, the market growth ahead and a lot of their key markets. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I agree with you. I mean, 20 times forward EBITDA gives, you know, me serious heartburn. Um, 
by the way, I mean, their margins might, might, you know, blow, blow past us. Right. Because remember they're doing, you know, 20, roughly 20%, let's say this quarter with, with the Nevada and mass headwinds with no grassroots without this Q3 expansion. So you start layering all these things on and you go, yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, 30 seems pretty doable. Could be higher too. Right. So, but if we just take 30 and take a billion dollars, you know, 20 times EBITDA forward, I mean, look, it's not cheap, but you know, it's not crazy either. Like that's, that's the thing with these companies today. So uh, I think I'd be a little cautious on this. I don't think I'd go crazy on this just yet. Um, I'd look to see if maybe, you know, as these unlocks happen, I can, I can enter. Uh, I'd also look to see if, you know, uh, I'd also look to see just, you know, try to be patient on these names, right? There's obviously a lot of excitement right now. Uh, and I think there'll be continued excitement at this financial performance, but you know, don't feel like you have to jump into these names all at once, you know, don't be afraid to buy a little, you know, add to your position and kind of watch it quarter over quarter. Yeah. I, I think that's great advice. You know, I have a ton of confidence in where these four are headed and where the market is headed in general. Um, but you got to be patient. You got to, you know, time your entries, take small bite sizes um, and just enter in a prudent way. Um, Cause you know, I mean, from March we're, you know, we're, we're seeing two to three X from March. Like there, there's probably a, a lot of people, you know, or a handful of people who have gains and could unload them at any point. Um, so you definitely don't want to just, you know, ride hype. You want to, you know, try to really see where, you know, what valuation you're entering at and are, are you comfortable with that looking, you know, a year out of two years out, whatever your time horizon is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And look, one thing we haven't talked about a lot, but you know, what we talked earlier about is, you know, supply is also going to get rationalized at some point, right? So Illinois, probably not a short-term problem, but you know, you could start to see price compression as more supply comes online. Right. So maybe, you know, maybe not, it's maybe not a given, but we are seeing that in Florida now. So you look at that and you go, okay, well, you know, these, these margins don't only have to go one way. They could start falling back the other way too. So you don't want to overpay a crazy amount for, for some of these companies. That being said, look, I mean, you know, Ben Kovler always, always says this, this is early innings. And I think looking at these footprints, uh, looking at these companies, I think maybe it's underappreciated how much growth is in front of them in the next one to three years. Like it, it really is just from some of these states turning online and, and uh, organic growth. Uh, it is an unbelievable opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like Illinois alone has driven a tremendous amount of exuberance and just, you know, positive financial development for these these companies and Arizona, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Florida, all going legal potentially and, you know, conservatively in the next five years, like each of those opportunities is, is, you know, another Illinois and potentially more. You know, it's funny. Uh, so th- this will uh, we'll, we'll get to the ending here because this is <laughs> over 90 minutes. We, But, you know, I, I think we definitely did these topics justice. And uh, Nick, we were going to talk about doing, uh, you know, a uh, uh, episode on, you know, kind of markets and what's a good market and what's not. And uh, I think we actually even covered it within this episode. So, um, you know, maybe we'll we'll have to brainstorm another topic. But I guess final thoughts. I mean, uh, how do you how do you think about these big four? How do you think about valuations today? Uh, you know, a lot of people say just buy the big four and, and don't worry about it. Like, is is that a fair strategy for for people who are you know maybe not as plugged in? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and and I would say it it ultimately comes down to you know what type of, of investor you are. Like, if if you're you know positive on this industry and you and you just want to buy and hold, definitely you know these top four I think are are, are the place to be. They're the most financially secure. They have you know obvious runway like we've identified today. You know their cash balances are secure. Um, you know, so if you have a long term, like, hey, I'm going to stick this in the market and come back in three or four years, this is probably your safest bet. Um, but I think, you know, this is an ever evolving market. It's very dynamic. Um, you know, you, I think you want to play the ups and downs a bit, you know, closer to, than that. Um, so I think you just have to be conscious of the fact that, you know, these companies have performed very well since the March downturn. Um and, you know, have, you know, not lofty valuations, but, you know, relative to current EBITDA figures, like, you know, definitely. They're not cheap. They're not, they're not cheap. Um, this is a growth industry, but they're certainly not cheap. Um, you know, so I, I would say be patient. Um, I think this, you know, we've even seen some small, slight cons- consolidation since kind of the earnings hype. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been bought up pretty quickly, which I think is a good sign. Um, so I would just say, you know, watch it, you know, if you're looking to enter, do it over the course of a week, you know, be patient, take small bite sizes. Um, these are great long-term companies, but that doesn't mean you just jump in at any price because, you know, hype and, uh, especially hype with low float companies, uh, can, can drive valuations wacky very quickly in, in either direction. So let, let's have fun and let's give a, a nice summary here. So I'm just going to give off, you know, of the four that we've mentioned here at today's prices that we've mentioned, I'm going to say I would go number one GTI. Uh, I would say I'm, I'm comfortable, the most comfortable buying at today's prices for GTI, although I'm a little cautious. I, I, I have been buying at today's prices. Um, number two, I'm going to say Curaleaf after this discussion. Um, I got to be a little careful on the price. I haven't started buying, but after this discussion, I'm going to look at it a lot more closely. Uh, and also I'm going to, you know, spend some time understanding the footprint better and, and, and trying to figure out how it will look with grassroots. Number three, you know, true leave, um, company I understand pretty well. Uh, if the price gets lower, um, probably another 20% or so, I'd probably start buying a little more aggressively. Uh, and also if they can overcome some of those, like if, if vertical integration doesn't go away, I'd probably feel more comfortable buying. Um, I'd also look to buy kind of during the, during and after the trial of her husband. I think that, that might create a buying opportunity. Uh, and then Cresco I'm the least confident on. Uh, but you know, even then, if it, if it starts to get beaten up a little bit, yeah, I might, I might start dabbling in that as well. Um, then I'll finish that all by saying, you know, you and I both have access to private deals and that's mostly what we're doing because publics are a lot more expensive than what we're seeing in the private, sorry, privates are, publics are a lot more expensive than what we have access to in the private markets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely a good point. Private investing is a, is a whole different ballgame to some extent. And I I think I agree with you on, on the order of the four there. Um, I think, you know, GTI and Curaleaf will both benefit from not having, the Massachusetts and Nevada overhang like they did in Q2, um, you know, as well, yep. as well as exposure to key markets. So I see, uh, you know, the upside is clear, truly, while, you know, extremely strong financials, they have bounced back more than everyone since March and then have those, you know, some slight concerns that you outlined. And and then, like you said, Cresco is just a bit more of an unproven story. Um, so I understand the caution there. 
Yeah, got it. Okay, great. Well, listen, Nick, it was a pleasure having you. Uh, you and your brother are true gentlemen, uh, and I am very glad I went to that dinner uh, and sat next to you. Uh, it has turned out pretty well so far. Uh, any final words you want to uh, leave our listeners with? Yep, Manish, I just want to echo that sentiment. It's been you know a real pleasure to get to know you, and you know, and just you know, not only been nice becoming friends, but just super you know helpful looking at this industry, and it, it's something that. Uh, I would recommend to everybody is just, you know, if you're going to look at an investment, do it with multiple eyes. Um, you know, you always yeah. want to do your own due diligence, but it really helps to converse and have conversations like these to really understand the market, see what you're potentially missing. Um, and it'll really help you, you know, kind of arrive at a more comfortable position in terms of, you know, having confidence in your investments. Yes, sir. Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> exactly. So on, on that positive note, guys, thanks for listening. I know it was a long episode, but I think it was really important. Thank you, Nick. CINpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, guys. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decision, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and st strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.